the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. This week, my guests in studio were Howard Hastings, Managing Director of the family-owned Hastings Hotel Group in Northern Ireland, who joined me to talk about its plans to build the largest hotel in Belfast, and Laura Slattery of the Irish Times, who will walk us through the financial difficulties being experienced by RTE and how it could eat up much of the €107 million Euro windfall it will receive from the sale of land at Montrose. Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes. And it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. I'll start with Hastings Hotels. Howard Hastings was in Dublin this week to announce plans for a £53 million investment in a new hotel in the centre of Belfast called the Grand Central. Hastings is already the biggest hotel chain in the north and also owns a share of the Marion Hotel in Dublin. Here's what Howard Hastings had to say about his new hotel, tourism in Belfast, Brexit and room rates in the Marion. Now, Howard Hastings, Managing Director of Hastings Hotel. You're very welcome. Uh, Thank you. You're here in Dublin to announce your plans for a new hotel in Belfast, a £53 million development called Grand Central. It's going to be Belfast's biggest hotel, I understand. Tell us a little bit about it. Uh, well, it's a, a former office block that was first built in 1974. Uh, for the first 35 years of its life, it was the tallest building, not only in Belfast, not only in Northern Ireland, but apparently in the island of Ireland, 80 metres high, um, and uh, was built offices. Uh, it actually was bought by, in 2006, by uh, a developer from this part of the world, P. Elliott, but the crash came uh, and uh, they weren't able to realise their plans and so it came back on the market a couple of years ago uh, and we acquired it and it's one of and those knockdown price? Uh, and I, the thing about buying buildings is if there was anyone who wanted to bid anymore they could have done and so you always come away from an auction fearing that you've paid far too much and only history will tell whether that was true or not um, I, I think the um, Interesting thing is, it's uh, really central in Belfast. Um, the City Fathers in, in 1974, when direct rule was imminent, were going to lose their planning powers, so they abolished the rule that no building near the City Hall could be any taller than the top of its dome. Uh, and this developer came in in 1974 and took advantage of that, and that's why it stands proud and tall in the city centre. It really is quite a landmark. Uh, and now we've had a, a look at what we've got uh, we've uh, worked out that we can put 300 really, really classy bedrooms. And, and so that's a significant addition to the bedroom stock in Belfast and in Northern Ireland. And will it be four star, five star? It'll be sort of, uh, we've got the Europa is just next door is four star. It'll be a little bit better than that. I don't think um, there is a, a five-star market in, in Belfast for, for 300 bedrooms for a unit of that size, uh, but we have the opportunity to, to size the rooms to be uh, what uh, modern travellers are, are looking for, and, and that's a little bigger than what the Europa had envisaged when it was built. Yeah, sure. Now, tell us a little bit, I mean, you're about more than just this new development and indeed the Europa number of hotels uh, in your portfolio in the north and also you have a share, a significant share in the Marion Hotel in Dublin. Just give us a, a little bit of a flavour for the size and scale of the Hastings Group. Well, the uh, acquisition uh, and opening of the Grand Central will bring, bring the number of hotel bedrooms we have in Northern Ireland over a 1,000 
for the first time. Uh, we're a private family company, uh, and our philosophy has been always to, to reinvest back into the company, and we've grown organically through the years. I suppose it goes back uh, perhaps 50 years when my father, who was came from a, a pub's background, moved first into hotels uh, and indeed we celebrated a couple of weeks ago the 50 years of the Culloden Estate and Spa on the outskirts of Belfast being in our ownership. Uh, that's a hotel that he bought 50 years ago for £100,000. It then had 11 bedrooms and a restaurant. Now it has conference and banqueting. It has 97 bedrooms. It has a spa spa. It has a Coltroyan grill bar in the grounds. What's it worth now if you were to place it on the market? That's not for me to say and actually it's not likely to go on the market it's funny um, there are uh, obviously people who can be emotionally detached from from properties they own but uh, I think when you've lived with a building for for 50 years like that you you do uh, get some form of of attachment to it Um, it was the first five star hotel in Northern Ireland and we believe that the market's now ripe to take advantage of all the investment we've put into it all these years. We can see the the weight of, of high-end incentive business that's coming north as well as to the to all other parts of the island as well and the Culloden's well placed to take advantage of that. So that's one of our hotels. Uh, I mentioned briefly the Europa is the one that probably everybody knows. Yeah, famously dubbed as as Europe's, I think, most bombed hotel. Was it just Europe or was it the world? Well, you could be be picky. There's people in Sarajevo and Beirut who would want to contest that award. Uh, Happily not on our watch uh, and and so that's the important thing from our point of view. People said we bought that far too cheap and weren't we lucky. But uh, again, at that time, uh, there wasn't a queue of bidders around the block either. Uh, Bill Clinton stayed there on one of his visits. Absolutely. And and, uh, during that, uh, the the very famous uh, visit when he switched on the the Christmas tree lights in Belfast. And uh, that was uh, we've had uh, a number of high profile visitors. That's uh, the nature of any uh, any uh, city like Belfast. Yeah, um, and tell us about the involvement in the Marion Hotel in Dublin. How did that come about? Well, that came about uh, in the late nineties, and uh, our two partners in the project, uh, Martin Nocton and Lachlan Quinn, had bought the buildings opposite uh, the uh, government buildings, and uh, were looking uh, to find somebody who would come in with them to, to develop it. Uh, it was a, a high risk project. The big brand names weren't interested in putting equity in, uh, but we were alive to opportunities to expand beyond Northern Ireland at that time uh, and, and so we came in with them uh, and that's been a very harmonious relationship uh, and we very much enjoy uh, our investment and, and our association. Absolutely uh, and, and again uh, we are in the middle as is our philosophy of reinvesting back into the, the Merion. Uh, we're looking forward to opening the, the new garden restaurant in the autumn. Right, and there's an expansion. You bought some properties around the side, didn't and you? we've made sense of the the, the office block that overlooked the garden uh, has been converted into apartments. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Um, and uh, just in terms of Belfast, I mean, how is it doing tourism wide? My, my sense is that it's thriving, helped by Titanic and Game of Thrones and so forth. But then you've Brexit on the other hand, and I wonder whether that's uh, maybe it's making it more attractive for visitors from the Republic, but perhaps it's uh, it's having negative impacts in other ways. Yeah. Um, Belfast is doing well. Uh, we have to think back um, not very long ago to when July and August were our quiet 
quietest months during the troubles uh, and the marching season and that was a reason to to stay away from Belfast happily now like the rest of the world July and August are our busiest months uh, and we are fully taking our part on the island of Ireland tourism product Uh, the moves that were made to develop the product in Northern Ireland not just Titanic Belfast but the work on the the Causeway Coastal Route the the work on the walled city of Derry Londonderry things like that have given more reasons for people to come to Northern Ireland Uh, a lot of events have been centred on Belfast as well so the tourism product is is very sound I suppose what we lacked we were a very seasonal destination but now the most recent investment in expanding Belfast's waterfront hall has given a a new uh, conference life to the city in the in the shoulder months in the winter period Uh, and, and so I think Belfast is ripe for new hotel investment because people investing in in that uh, can take advantage of of a a 365-day market now. Yeah, and obviously you benefited from the fact that we've had a peace process for you know roughly speaking twenty years, but we don't have a, an administration in Stormont at the minute. There's a huge impasse between the DUP and Sinn Fein. Um, uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that, and how might that hold back the industry? I think it's not held back the industry on the ground, uh, but my my fear is that uh, the lack of funds being uh, directed towards marketing uh, within both the the National Tourist Board, Tourism Northern Ireland, and within Tourism Ireland, uh, if that isn't put right by a new administration, then that may have a longer-term impact on the attractiveness of the region. Um, It's it's interesting how uh, for uh, both uh, Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, GB remains a, a key source market. Uh, and a lot of people in GB uh, are, are a bit confused about the nature of Northern Ireland. It's amazing how many bring their passports, bring plug socket adapters, bring euros that, that don't really need to. And, and they choose to be a little bit confused about the nature of that. So insofar as Brexit has maybe cre- caused fewer people from Great Britain to travel to the Republic of Ireland in the last year, uh, Northern Ireland's had a little bit of a knock-on effect of that as well. Obviously, we're a more attractive destination from an economic point of view uh, for people from the south to travel north, and we've seen a little bit of upswing from that as well. And that goes with the cycles. We remember just at the point at which the credit crunch first came, the the, the way that the euro went against the pound, all the cross-border shopping uh, gave reason. People people had other arbitrage reasons for maybe taking weekend breaks. Maybe it was cheaper to buy a car. Maybe it was cheaper for dental care or whatever. Uh, we don't mind as long as they want to take a weekend break to en- enjoy the experience. Right. Now, one of the criticisms in Dublin in particular is that uh, room rates have have really jacked up over the last uh, few years. And, and partly the reason for that is that uh, supply and demand aren't in equilibrium. We've got a lot of hotel rooms being built, but they're going to take a few, a few years to uh, come on stream. What's the position in the north? I, I think uh, we have room to build uh, more in Northern Ireland. Um, we don't suffer the same... Uh, um, constraints that Dublin does. Obviously, Dublin Airport is such a major magnet for people at the start or end of their journeys. Uh, But you have to remember that there are 60,000 hotel bedrooms in the Republic of Ireland and there are only 8,000 in Northern Ireland. In fact, there's probably more bedrooms in the county of Kerry uh, than there are in the whole of 
Northern Ireland. So we have room for uh, an upswing in hotel bedroom numbers. And what's good to see is demand has been growing to facilitate that. Um, and I think we can see the bedrooms coming on stream as well, not just our grand central investment. There are other hotels due in the next two years as well. So if somebody's considering a couple of nights in the Culloden, what could they expect to pay? <laughs> um, our rates, uh, obviously, like, like everybody else's rates, move up and down. What I would be keen to say is uh, I, I don't uh, ever complain about rates in the Merion because I think you get what you pay for. Uh, what I what are do, rates in the Merion running at? I, I, again, I know what the, the ultimate achieved rate is. I don't know what people are paying on an individual night for an individual hotel room. Mm. Will, will well, what's the ultimate somewhat. achieved rate then? Um, the, but... Uh, if I could, what what I would say is where we're going to get ourselves a bad name is if some of these computer models that say for three and three star hotels you could get that tonight and they put it on their website and you get some three star hotel five miles out of the centre of Dublin charging three or four hundred euros a room. That's what's probably going to get the industry into trouble. And uh, I have been encouraging hoteliers north and south to say, be careful that uh, there probably is a, a, a maximum rate at which you should pitch your wares uh, and you should be uh, at your peril. Go ahead of that. You've already seen uh, in your own newspaper criticism earlier on this week or at the end of last week from academics saying that uh, the reputation of Ireland is is becoming tarnished by the perceived high hmm. prices. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think they're a bit more than perceived in the case of Dublin, particularly at five-star establishments. So, um, again, at the Marion, what, what's the achieved rate uh, at the Marion, roughly speaking? Well, I, I think it, um, uh, there's uh, most days it's kind of four to five hundred euros yeah. a night it's in the high season. It? That's, um, that's it, quite expensive. It's, well, it is. Um, and what we find is obviously there's not a big domestic demand at that rate, but there is a, a demand from especially North American visitors uh, who realise that that's they recognise that's what they pay other places they go of a similar standard yeah okay um, and in the, how would that compare with the north I mean what would be the rates would still be below that in, in Northern Ireland we wouldn't have uh, properties charging at that level you know gen- yeah. generally the merchant which I know isn't part of your group but it's a, a five star central Belfast it's a big reputation yes occasionally but then on other if it's a quiet weekend you'll get rooms in the merchant and as in the rest of Belfast for very competitive prices as well yeah, okay. Now, Hastings, very much a family affair. Your father uh, founded the group, Sir William Hastings. Uh, he's 89 now, is that right? Coming 89. And still involved in the business? Yes, very much so. Uh, it's a, a lifelong journey. Uh, he, his father died when he was 12 years old, uh, and he started working in the, along with his brother uh, in the pubs as soon as he left school. So he's been on a, a long journey through it, and uh, he loves it to bits. Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, it's a... <laughs> a source of pleasure to him that he's got uh, all his children involved in the business as well so there's myself I'm the managing director I have three sisters involved in the business as well yeah and you must have had offers for the hotel surely people must have come knocking on your door and saying you know we love the look of this portfolio that you have we'd love to buy it off you are you interested in selling strangely not uh, or maybe not strangely but uh, I I suppose uh, ours is uh, as a family business uh, each 
property is is really quite distinctive. Uh, it probably doesn't line up as a as a homogeneous setup as it would do maybe in in other groups. Uh, and uh, because again we've grown up with the the properties, uh, we know the the markets to which each one is uh, susceptible, uh, and uh, it works well that uh, each of the properties are really within a short drive time of of, of head office, uh, and and we get synergies uh, through that, uh, and hopefully are able to add a little bit of uh, personal authenticity, personal touch uh, to the services that we can offer to our visitors, that they get a, a an authentic uh, Northern Ireland experience, uh, rather than maybe a, a, a big chain, more homogenised offering. And finally, have you figured out what Brexit's going to mean for the group? Or no, mean for Northern Ireland? No, not yet. Uh, I, I suppose uh, the, the view I take is that uh, Northern Ireland in tourism terms is much more like the uh, Republic of Ireland than it is like Great Britain. So when it comes to uh, Brexit negotiations, uh, uh, industry sectors like agriculture and tourism uh, are much more important for Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. Mainland Great Britain might be far more obsessed about manufacturing and financial services. So I, I think uh, it, it's good that we work closely with uh, uh, with all the industry uh, in North and South, um, and and a lot of our largest suppliers of, of group business, of conference business, it would be the mainstream Republic of Ireland suppliers based here that are uh, uh, selling throughout the island. Uh, so we would stand uh, to lose, just as southern trade would stand to lose, uh, if there's anything that makes it more difficult for customers to move between north and south, anything that makes it more difficult for us to recruit from the widest possible labour pool uh, and, and any other artificial artificially imposed barriers uh, that would, would prevent uh, the, the, the current arrangements, which I think work quite well. Um, I suppose the only opportunity we have from Brexit is that currently European state aid rules uh, prevent things like the, the, the regional application of air passenger duty or the regional um, application of VAT rates. Those are two of the systemic uh, areas where we in Northern Ireland operate at a competitive disadvantage to our southern counterparts and in a post-Brexit scenario it would be possible perhaps that uh, regional uh, variations could be applied uh, to by, by the Westminster government uh, to some of this revenue raising uh, what's the VAT rate? We currently uh, suffer 20% VAT on accommodation and visitor attractions, whereas obviously it's 9% in the Republic of Ireland. 20%? That's very high. <laughs> and well, sorry, what's the experience on mainland Britain? It, well, it is the same, obviously. It's 20% uh, as well? 20%. Well, and the guys here give out about nine percent. Well, I think they, they, they may give out about nine percent, but they they have fought to get the nine percent. They jealously guard the nine percent. They did really well uh, to get it, and uh, it should be retained because so many of the other European mm. countries see uh, tourism as a source of foreign earnings. I think the uh, obviously the the exchequer here recognises that as well, uh, and and has uh, been very strong at at keeping that rate, albeit uh, that other industry sectors might criticise it but you can see that with the removal of air passenger duty here and the 9% VAT visitor numbers certainly have multiplied and the uh, tourism economy here has has really uh, been given a shot in the arm by that intervention Sure so soft border not hard border Yes please 
presumably you, you are you in favour of the immigration controls um, that let's well, say no, UKIP we, we, and others have advocated? No, I, I think uh, just as here, you know, we enjoy a, a wide pool of labour. What uh, percentage of your labour will be overseas? I, I couldn't. I, I couldn't tell you precisely. Um, however, I mean, what that um, skills mix does uh, has been to, I think, raise the the standard of of labour in some of the uh, work areas. Uh, we've enjoyed that. I think our customers have appreciated uh, the higher skill levels that having the widest possible workforce can bring. Okay, Howard Hastings, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break now, and when we return, I'll be speaking to Laura Slattery about the financial challenges facing RTE. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. I wish life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Uh, don't forget, you can download this podcast for free on iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com uh, forward slash podcast. I'm joined in studio for this part of the show by Laura Slattery, who's going to talk to us about RTE and its 107.5 million euro windfall for selling nearly nine acres of land at its Montrose complex in Donnybrook. Laura, RTE financially challenged. We, we know all about that. Uh, how are they going to put this money to use? Well, there's several different claims on this uh, sum of money. Um, you know, there's the, the, the long-held wish list of upgrades to their uh, transmission network and uh, studio facilities. And then there's um, a couple of other things that I suppose have, have arisen since they first floated the idea of, um, or I should say revived the idea of selling the land. And um, there's some debt that they want to pay down. Now, that doesn't mean they'll pay down everything that they owe, but there was some, a working capital loan mm. uh, that matures you know this year. Um, well, there's a 15 million working capital loan, and then there's another 40 million that they've drawn down that doesn't mature for another two years, and that relates to uh, project finance uh, to the switch over to the digital terrestrial uh, television. Which is so, in a sense, it was a project that was forced upon them uh, by the government. They had to carry the cost of that, and they did so at a very uh, challenging time for both the economy at large and uh, you know the advertising uh, sector. So its own its own finances. So it has that element, but then it also it, it has ended up in a position where uh, just through a combination of, of uh, its workforce swelling again over the last uh, couple of years and also the commercial situation not really being as happy as they might have hoped it would be, um, that it looks like you know they can't carry the number of employees that they currently have. So they announced in March that they would have a voluntary redundancy and early retirement scheme. And that it, you know, they sort of, they've waited until the land sale in order to launch that and it's expected to be opened up to staff um, sometime this summer, July or August. Right. Well, that sounds good news for those who are perhaps interested in leaving. There might be, there might yeah. be a, quite a pot of money there now to pay voluntary redundancy. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's going to be the, the subject of negotiations between the RTE group of unions and, and the management. So uh, the group of unions, of course, will say, look at this uh, higher, much higher than expected, 43% above the guide price that they got uh, um, for the land sale. Um, but of course... We'll RTE, have some of that if we don't mind. Yeah, yeah. and RTE will, but will say, oh, but, you know, we do have a very challenging financial situ- situation on, on a day-to-day level. Um, in the annual report, 
report for last year hasn't been published yet, but it's expected to show a deficit of at least 20 million. I think it possibly would be about 22 million. Um, and so it can, you know, at the same time say, look, this is a really d- difficult, challenging time for us, notwithstanding the fact that we've got, you know, the, the, the bulk of this uh, 107.5 million less, of course, professional fees and some You're capital gains tax. A, a deficit for last year, possibly 20, as high as 22 million euros. That's a, that's a loss, effectively. It's just another yeah. way of categorising a loss. 22 million euros. So that's nearly half a million euro a week that they were losing last year. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of last year, I think, was a a year of two halves for them, uh, certainly on the commercial revenue side. uh, It was all going great until Brexit and then it all fell away. It also had a lot of high costs, some of which, they, you know, they surely would have anticipated, like the general election. And, uh, you know, the cost of, you have to take the cost of, of, yeah, and the euro, although the euro, uh, euros, the football championship, it brings in a lot of commercial revenue. Of course, they've got to take the, that the the cost of paying the rights comes out uh, uh, so it has to be registered on their accounts for now that you, year. They did defray that somewhat by selling on some of the rights, subcontracting yeah, some rights. Yeah, they, they were for, sort of, that was unprecedented, you know, and that's that's why they do that because and uh, they've lost the Six Nations. I think, yeah, uh, well, that's another that's a, a really big problem for next year, and I, you know, that's going to really absolutely hammer uh, RT two in particular. But just to go back to last year, uh, it was, you know, I think you know the the centenary costs, which which, which they received a lot of praise for that the, their coverage of the nineteen sixteen centenary. Um, you know, was was a costly business as well, and, and you know they may have you know been happy to take it on because it, it was you know good for the, for the or its reputation as sort of a, sort of the central organisation within this kind of cultural remembrance thing, and they've tried to do a few more things along those lines since, such as Crinu uh, Nikoska at Easter time. You know, it sort of helps its case almost in a, in a kind of very broad reputational way when it's going into the government saying we 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 want more security on our public funding. Look at all the Think great things that we do, but there's no doubt that last year was very expensive, and uh, with uh, the Brexit effect, as I said, in the second half of but the I would year. Have thought of all media companies in Ireland, RT is the greatest certainty on its uh, public funding. Well, I mean, it's got yeah, it's got the, the greatest it's got fund- public funding, the greatest certainty on its on its funding. Full stop. You're right, um, but I suppose there's been a couple of I suppose things that can that it's very easy uh, to have a couple of things happening behind the scenes uh, that that maybe aren't uh, completely mm. obvious. Well, to let's public. explore those because you mentioned uh, Brexit earlier, and you were talking to RT uh, last week, and you wrote for the newspaper about this about the cost of Brexit to RT. What, what are they estimating at? Yeah, so I had a chat with the the group commercial director Willie O'Reilly just to sort of just put some numbers on on, on what uh, the director general D Forbes had been saying publicly, which was that that Brexit was not having a good effect on them at all. So really, uh, so there's sort of two parts to it. Um, the first is that it's sort of about you know twenty million of its of its of eighty million plus uh, uh, television advertising revenues come from big advertisers that book their campaigns in in, in London. So they allocate a certain amount to the Irish market and they do so in London in sterling terms and they would have done that you know before the uh, Brexit vote and then lo and behold after sterling collapses the value of that to RTE 
also goes down. So you're, it, you know, it goes down whatever the rate of the surrounding collapse was. I think it was it was it was not quite twenty percent, but it was almost that much. And um, so that had that costed about two point five million just for that second six months of, of last year, and it extended into this year, the second half, or first half of this year, by a similar amount. So it was at least five million just on that effect alone. And you know, we're in a situation now with the general election results and, and all kinds of other uncertainties um, that you know, doesn't Sterling doesn't look like it's going to be, you know, getting back up to its pre-referendum levels. And maybe, you know, maybe mm. maybe that was overpriced anyway. But um, the other effect is, of course, that a lot of the big advertisers are kind of being more cautious anyway, um, partly to do with Brexit, maybe to do with marketing, um, just, uh, I suppose, seeking uh, better profits at a time of economic uncertainty. So they cut back their marketing spend. So, so notably, Unilever said a few, just in April, actually, we're going to cut back our global marketing spend by 30%. So those kinds of things have a knock-on effect because Unilever would, be one of, would typically be one of the top 10 television advertisers. In terms of last year's lost 22 million, 2.5 million in the Brexit effect, that's about you know 10 or 11%, 11%, say. Um, there's still an awful lot of losses in there that have nothing to do with Brexit. Well, the guts are twenty million. I think the I think it's fair to say that they spent too much last year. Now, I mean, they probably argue that. Yeah, the, the staff numbers went up in particular in 2014, I think, and then it continued in 2015. I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm presuming their argument is that, you know, they needed those particular staff numbers. They took, I know they took on a number of uh, new producers in, 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 in radio, but uh, from my memory of looking at the annual report, it seemed to be pretty much across the board. Every division seemed to go up a little bit rather than it being centred in one division. So uh, I think this particular Von Jurunzi, um programme, they'll be hoping for at least 200 people to, to sign up. Now, the last redundancy uh, programme they had, um, or the, the, at least the one they had in 2011, they were completely oversubscribed on, on the numbers that they were looking for, which was good because they, you know, they think they cut about 500 staff almost in total over throughout the recession. But yeah, they, they, it was a surprise to me that they would have, I suppose you could say, they stopped that tightening and they sort of seem to think that the recession was over sure. uh, and that's not the case. Or and they're also the, looking at shutting down their merchandising business which was largely built around DVD sales which I guess have collapsed with the advent of streaming and so forth. Yeah, no, that wouldn't have been a massive business anyway but, uh, you know, DVDs, um, you know, globally the market has been in decline since for 10 years now um, but it was kind of interesting because they had a late, a kind of a late hurrah with the, they've got quite a lot of copies love-hate DVDs around Christmas time in around 2013 around that, that period when Love hate was supposed supposedly at its peak. It was sort of almost part of the national conversation. If you hadn't seen it, you were you were felt like you were in a minority. So you know that was a sort of a last minute Christmas gift, I think, uh, situation or people who may be catching up in earlier seasons. Um, but you know, since then, I, I think it's 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 been a bit more difficult for them. And there isn't really it's not even you know what you know that they haven't got. Uh, you know, properties as good as love hate to sell. It's to do with the distribution and the, there's a number, limited number of uh, shops where you can buy these things anyway. And didn't seem to think you know that it would be um, worth their while to sort of you know to offer it for sale as digital download. The BBC has tried that and has actually backed away from it. Um, so it's just really everything now is you show it on television live, then it's on your catch-up player, and then it might be on Netflix or some other similar service, or maybe. You make it available from time to time on your again on your own player, but okay. this trying to get you know another revenue stream out of DVD just isn't isn't going to work. So it's it's a, it's it's a challenging t- time for them. Just that there's quite a competitive market, and there are you know there is a pro- you know on television, which is of course the, their biggest source of their in- commercial income. Um, 
viewers are are drifting away both from 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 linear television and from some of its uh, most reliable bankers over the years. I mean, you mentioned the Six Nations there, and that's 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 gone to TV three from next spring, and that's going to be a, a a big hit for them. All right. Any silver linings to these uh, many clouds that are hanging over RT at the minute? Well, I think I think the land sale price is a silver lining that the, the amount they got in because I mean they did you know they they sort of played the market in a sense they waited until they thought the market was right to do this. Uh, the other silver lining, of course, is they haven't sold all the land that they they have. Um, and now th- th- it'd be interesting to see if there's uh, any budget day moves. Uh, you know, look, I don't I don't expect anything at all on the licence fee rate but there's things they can do behind the scenes which in fact they did do last year they didn't really publicise it that much the government but they um, allocated more of the funding to from funding to pay for TG Cahar from the direct uh, exchequer rather than from the licence fee which had the effect of benefiting RTE and they also slightly increased the cap on the sum the Department of Social Protection pays the Department of Communications in respect of people who receive free television licences now both of those were cut in the opposite direction uh, <laughs> during the recession as I say that's why I say sometimes that's why they had that argument about we need more certainty because those things can be you know go up and down at any point for them but they were going slightly uh, I suppose from their point of view, in the right direction, and they could do so again. On the other hand, I feel that they are, as I said today, hopping <laughs> at the back of a very long queue uh, for claims on the uh, public purse. Yes, and I should remind listeners, Laura did a very fine column in uh, this morning's newspaper, Tuesday's newspaper, uh, about uh, all of these issues facing RT, and indeed that's available for us uh, online. Laura, will stay tuned for further developments down the road on RT. Thanks for your contribution there. That's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. Uh, my thanks to Howard Hastings and Laura Slattery for the contributions. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with Declan Conlon sound engineer don't forget that you can sign up uh, for the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook I'm Kieran Hancock until next time take care